Let's take our Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes this morning, chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. All of you have probably heard of Murphy's Law. Murphy's Law is uh, just a kind of a fun thing to try to explain some of the perplexities and confusing things of life. The main law of Murphy's Law is if something can go wrong, it will go wrong. Uh, some, some derivatives, if anything, anytime things appear to be going better, you've overlooked something. Another one is once a job is fouled up, anything done to improve it makes it worse. And one of my favorite, I, I didn't look this up, but one of my favorite is if you're ever working on something, if you drop a pencil or a tool, it always rolls into the exact middle of whatever you're working on so you can't reach it. Uh, that's Murphy's Laws. They're not actually laws, of course. They are just little things to try to figure out the perplexity of life. But you know, life is perplexing. Life is confusing. Life is disappointing. Sometimes it's very hard to figure it out, isn't it? And the perplexity of life was driving Solomon to absurdity of meaninglessness, of despair. He's an observer of life. He's the wisest man the Lord has ever made outside of Christ. Uh, who, of course, is the son of God. So uh, the, uh, the just a white, brilliant man. He looked at life. He observed life all over the place. And he came up with perplexities and even despair. And yet he swings back and forth between despair and chapter 12, verse 11, where he said these very perplexities, these very confusing issues are the things that, are, that goad us on to understand God or turn back to God. These are the things that presses forward to try to find truth and to turn to God himself. Uh, in Solomon's life, uh, it, he kept trying to untangle these mysteries of life, these difficult things, never could do it, until he finally turned back to the one who could untangle life itself. And so as we look at this passage of scripture today, a very difficult passage, I want to say this, first of all, that if you do not know Christ as your Savior, the Lord has designed his universe so that you are constantly confused and perplexed. The Lord has so designed his universe that you cannot figure it out without a connection with God himself and his word and his truth. That's God's design. So if you're struggling there and you don't know Christ, that's a reason, or at least one of the reasons. But even Solomon, who did know the Lord, was struggling with many things. And he's trying to make sense of things that are hard to make sense of. In chapters 6 and 7, he's kind of working on two lies that people tell themselves. Two lies that humanity tell themselves. In chapter 6, the lie is that all things can be fixed with money and finances. And he's unraveled that and he's demolished that idea in chapter 6. Today we turn to chapter 7 to another lie. And that is that sadness, adversity, difficulties, hard times are always bad. And Solomon's going to look at that with us today. Actually, he leaves us in chapter 6, verse 12 with a very important question, a question that all of us ask, that everybody asks, it is this, for who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime? Isn't that basically the thrust of life? Who knows what is good for us in the life that we live here? So he leaves us with that question, and then he, on that question, he hooks a number of Proverbs to talk to us about wise living before the Lord. I will say this as we go into this, he doesn't unravel all these mysteries and, and in such a beautiful way that, that they're all solved. He doesn't give us a package with a nice bow on top and say, here's the remedy to all these mysteries. He leaves a lot of these mysteries unsolved uh, because the purpose of these mysteries is not always to be solved, 
but the drive is to the one who can solve all things. And that's what's going on in chapter 7 of this particular book. So these perplexities that we'll look at today, these confusing issues, will, are, can either drive us to despair, or they'll drive us to truth and to God. There's not a lot of middle ground, as Solomon sees it. What are those things he wants to talk about? Well, first of all, sorrow. So I want to look at the first six verses with you. The first six verses begin to talk about sorrows and disappointments, and, and the greatest of all sadnesses is probably that of death. When someone passes away, that is the great sorrow, perhaps life's greatest sorrow. How are we going to deal with sorrow in this life? And how are we going to deal with death is one of those great sorrows. There's a foolish way and a wise way, according to Solomon, to deal with these things. We'll start with the foolish and drop down to verse 4 to begin with. He says, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. Well, the mind of fools, and notice how often he says fools here, those that have a fool is one who has left God out of the equation and lives as if God does not exist. The mind of the fool is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than to listen to the songs of fools. For as a crackling of thorn bushes under the pot, so is the laughter of the fool, for this too is futility. Three times he mentions fool here, as I just explained what it meant. Uh, there's nothing more obvious, in my opinion, as a pastor, dealing with people in different life situations, and having done many, many dozens of funerals over the years, there's nothing more obvious to me than, than people are, do not really believe in the reality of death. That's an odd thing, since everybody dies, right? But, but if people believed in the reality of death, wouldn't they actually live a little differently? If, if you knew that you were going to go out of this world one day and you're going to face an eternity that you don't understand, you don't know what that is going to be like, or if you've read the Bible, you know you will face a God who will judge you in righteousness. If you had any inkling of that at all, wouldn't that make a difference in how you live life? I would certainly think it would, but for many people, it does not at all. Strangely, he talks here about these fools living uh, their lives as, as a fool. Notice the number of things he says. Where's the, the fool in verse 2? Look at verse 2. They're, they're in the house of feasting. In verse 4, they're in the house of pleasure. In verse 5, they're singing the songs of other fools. And in verse 6, they're filling their life up with superficial laughter. For as a crackling of thorns under the uh, bush under a pot... So is the laughter of fool and his futility. In ancient Palestine, they would often take thorn bushes and start a quick fire with them. And they would burn very quickly and very hot for just a moment. And then they would turn very uh, useless. They could not actually cook a meal, but they'd make a big, big production at first. So the question is, what is wrong with living this way? What is wrong with living uh, in the house of fools? What is wrong with laughter and so forth? What is wrong with enjoying life? And the answer all throughout Scripture and in Ecclesiastes as well is there's nothing wrong with enjoying life. God has created life to be enjoyed by His people. Solomon's talked about enjoying life on a number of occasions. What he's contrasting is not enjoying life. What he's contrasting is living superficially compared to living in a life of seriousness before God in the light of sorrow and death. There's a difference. Michael Horton in his book called recovery, Recovering Our Sanities, says that death is a party crasher. Now, I really like that. 
Think, think about the parties, the, the fun times, the enjoyment of life that people go through. He says all that's going to be crashed by this party crasher called death. And therefore our society takes one of three approaches to death. Number one, they deny it. That's kind of what I've been talking about so far. Number two, they downplay it. Uh, we no longer believe in drab sermons, he said. Uh, we believe now in celebrations of life. Now, that's a newest fad, fad about at the time of death, celebration of lives. And I haven't necessarily come to a final conclusion on that term yet. But I do note that uh, what, what we're doing here at this time, and he's very much against that terminology of a celebration of life. Uh, what, what we're doing at that time is trying to avoid any reality of death at all. And so we come together and talk about the life of an individual. We don't face the fact of death and, and what comes after that and the provision that God has made so that we have eternal life. Instead, we celebrate the life of someone. And we should celebrate to a degree, but we don't want to minimize or, or erase the idea of death. When my brother died about four years ago, uh, his wife wanted to have a celebration of life some months later. And, uh, and it was probably fine because I don't think my brother was a Christian and my sister-in-law uh, certainly wasn't a Christian. And so the best they had was to get together and talk about some stories about my brother. If that's all you have, then you ought to celebrate what you got. But this passage of Scripture says you need to be thinking also about death because death comes, and what comes after death, according to Hebrews, is judgment. There's a wise way of dealing with death and sorrow, however. We back up to verse 1. A good name is better than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It's better to go in the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. Now that seems odd, doesn't it? To read those words, we, have to, we immediately push back and say that can't possibly be. How can that possibly be? Verse 1. It's, it, the day is one death is better than the day is one birth? What is he talking about here? How difficult is this? Well, he wants us to examine our values once again in the light of the inevitability of death. When we're out having a good time, going to a party or whatever, do we think about life? Do we think about the future? Do we think about the inevitability of eternity? Not likely. But when we're at a funeral of a loved one, we will. When we see a sorrowful and awful thing happen, we think about the, the end of life. No one wants to live in a funeral home. And he's not suggesting that. I actually had a good friend back in high school that did live in a funeral home. Uh, her father had started this funeral home, and, uh, and they were it's very early in the, in the process, and they lived upstairs. So I went over there a few times with some friends, and it was very, very creepy, to tell you the truth. You know, we were up there having a good time, and then when we left, we walked right by dead people. You know, just, just kind of with a damper for the evening, you know what I mean? It just kind of left a thought there. Uh, but I don't think he's suggesting living in a nursing home. He suggest, is contrasting superficial living with living with, for eternal values. And that's what he wants us to consider here. In the book, The Shadows, as Brian has mentioned in his Sunday school class, uh, the author there says, in our multitasking Google, Facebook, soundbite world, we are training our brains to pay attention to garbage. 
That's a good point. Now, Solomon could say something like the same thing back in his more simple times. Think about today. You see, fun and silliness and these superficial activities are designed, now get this, they are designed to distract us from that which is important in life. There's benefit to these things. We all want to laugh. We all want to have good times. We all, all want to go to parties and enjoy life. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. Unless those things are distracting us from that which is truly important. And that is what he's talking about here. It's like a person with a serious disease that is giving painkillers that covers up the pain. That's great. But it doesn't, doesn't fix the problem. Doesn't, doesn't cure the disease. That's not great. And so laughter and joy, outward things, they are beneficial. They're part of one, the wonder of life. God has given us life to enjoy but they do not take away the problem, and they can distract as well. So we have a choice of following the way of the fool, the way of, of the wise. Owen Strand, in his very good book, Reenchanting Humanity, and Owen's going to be our men's speaker at our conference in April, he writes that our temporality is meant to drive us not to despair, but to worship God. The very fact that we are temporal, that we're here temporarily, is designed not to drive us to despair, as it seemed to do for Solomon sometimes, but to actually drive us to the worship of God. Now there's a second set of issues he wants to talk about, and these are some of life's uh, common problems or issues. When, let, me, let me frame it this way. When life does not make sense to you, uh, when you're struggling to put the pieces together in your particular life, what do you do? Uh, we tend to react in a number of ways that Solomon identifies for us here. These are ways of coping with life that do not solve the problem and has caused more problems to begin with. Here, five of them, very quickly. We take advantage of others. Verse 7. He says, For oppression makes a wise man mad and a bribe corrupts the heart. He's not talking about us being oppressed. He's talking about us being the oppressor. When we look at the perplexities and confusions and the ugliness of life, some people will make the choice, well, why not get in on a party? I'm going to take advantage of other people. Uh, if a bribe works for me, that's great. But Solomon says that causes the person to become mad or crazy. It takes away our integrity. It, it, it crumbles our very, very fabric of our lives when we begin to become people that take advantage of others. Secondly, there's impatience. Verse 8, the end of the matter is better than the beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Many of us, as we look at the difficulties of life, become very impatient. And we become arrogant, he says. That is, we look around and say, if everybody lived like I live, and make decisions like I make them, this world will be great. Why don't all of you guys get on board and do what I do? It's the arrogance of the spirit that he speaks of here. Patience, impatience then will lead us to being irritable. It will lead us to be frustrated. Uh, it, will, it will cause us to give up on other things. It will cause us to give up on, on people. It will cause us to give up on society. It can cause us to give up on the church. Because these things are made up of imperfect situations and imperfect people. And therefore we want nothing to do with those and we back off. That's one of the options that people take. I've always appreciated people that do, are not impatient, who persevere. One of my heroes, of Christian heroes, is none other than William Carey, who's considered the father of modern missions. 
He lived in the late 1700s, early 1800s. He opened up missions in India and those countries around there. He spent all of his life translating scripture and giving the gospel. He translated the Bible into six different languages. Can you imagine that? And, and for much of that time, he watched his friends die around him. He watched his wife go insane and then die. He, he was, had all sorts of issues and health issues, and he stayed at the task. And he said at the end of his life, this, these words, If the biographer gives me credit for being a, a plotter, he will describe me justly. Anything beyond this is too much. I can plod. I can persevere at any definite pursuit. To this I owe everything. He didn't see himself as a brilliant person. He continued to patiently plod and accomplish the work that God had put before him. That's the opposite of the impatient. But a lot of us don't simply get impatient. We get angry. Verse 9, he talks about that. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. So easy to, to look at. A world. We live in an angry world, don't we? Uh, everywhere you turn, somebody's angry or somebody's trying to make us angry. The media, is, the whole thing about media today is to incite anger so you'll follow their calls or click their buttons. That's, we live in that kind of a world. And our impatience with life, with the struggles and the perplexities that we face, these things cause us to want to become angry at the life around us. But to live angrily is to live miserably. Anger also opens the door, according to Ephesians chapter 4, to the work of the devil himself in our lives. It gives him an open door to our spirit. Steve Swartz, in his book, Scattering Shattered Shepherds, said something very insightful. He claimed that unbiblical anger is, listen, a decision to not trust the Lord. He says, if my trust in the Lord was literally perfect, at a scale only found in heaven, how angry would I be? <laughs> Hardly at all, right? When we are angry, unbiblically, then we are choosing not to trust Him, the sovereign God. Here's the fourth thing that we might do, and this is, different. This is the opposite of anger. We retreat into the past. In verse 10, he says, Do not say, Why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Here are people that have, have simply said, I, I just can't handle life right now. I can't handle the world as it is. So I'm going to go back to the good old days, back when things were simpler, back when things were easier, and so forth. He says that's not wise to do that. First of all, because, you know what? They were never that good. You just have a bad memory. <laughs> they were never that easy. They were never that good. Read a little history. You'll find that we're probably living in the best times of all times right now. We don't think it is. He's not against nostalgia. Go, if you want to go back to your old high school and look around the place and, and be, have a little nostalgia, go back to your neighborhood, fine, do it. I think that's kind of a sweet thing to do. But you don't live there. You don't live in the past. You have to deal with the reality of now. Too many people talk about the good old days but don't want to do anything about the nasty now and now. Let's live in the reality, he says. Living in the past, a dream world of the past simply makes things worse. And then finally, the, the final option that many take is, is the pursuit of, wit, of riches. In verse 11, he says this, Wisdom along with the inheritance is good, and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. 
So many people think, well, you know what, I, I can't fix the world, and I can't do this or that, and I'm frustrated by everything around me, but I can retreat into my wealth. I can, I can buy what I want to keep me happy, and I will do that. And he says in verse, uh, verse 12, uh, or verse 11, something that all of us would agree, money can be helpful, money can be protective, but money has a limit, and wisdom does not. He talks about wisdom here. He says, look, money cannot protect us like wisdom can. As a matter of fact, money can drain us. It can drain from us that which is truly valuable as we live for that which often becomes an idol in our life. Wisdom does for us what money never can. It preserves life. So there's some of the issues. He's looked at sorrow. He's looked at these, these uh, senseless uh, things of life. Now he moves to one, another area that is perplexing to him, and that is the understanding of God. The understanding of God. Look at verse 13. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten out what he has bent. In the days of prosperity, be happy. In the days of adversity, consider... God has made the one as well as the other. Notice the contrast. The fool retreats into anger, impatience, money, or whatever. The wise person considers. In both these verses, he says, consider. Give it careful, careful thought. And as you give it careful thought, you will draw two conclusions. Number one, no one can change the plans of God. Verse 13 again, he says, Consider the work of God, who is able to straighten out what he's bent. Much of life is outside of our control. Do you realize that? It, it doesn't matter what you try. Much of it you cannot fix. It's outside of your control. You cannot bend, unbend what God bends. I remember some years ago, back when the jogging craze started. Some of you might remember that. Nobody used to jog. And then a guy named Jim Fix came along and started teaching everybody to run and jog. And uh, he was fit. He was teaching fitness. Jim, Jim Fix died one day jogging at age 52. You know, I always found that a little ironic. You know, maybe he should have sat and watched more TV. I don't know. <laughs> but but he, he should have, by all counts, lived to be 100, right? And he didn't. He died of a heart attack at age 52 running, getting in shape. Now, I'm not telling you not to get in shape. Don't, don't use that as, as an excuse to, to bloat yourself this Christmas season and do nothing. But nevertheless, some things are outside of our control, he is saying. Second option, or second conclusion, is that we should take, make the most of whatever comes our way. Look at verse 14. In the days of prosperity, be happy. In the days of adversity, consider. God has made one as well as the other. Good times will come. Enjoy them. Really. God wants you to enjoy those good times, those times of fellowship, those times of family, those times of fun. Enjoy those good times. God places his blessing on that. But when the bad times come, and they will, consider, consider what? God has made one as well as the other. God is sovereignly in control of the good times and the bad times as well. And that's why many of us really enjoy that song, fairly modern song, The God on the Mountain. Remember that song? Uh, Carla sung that to it for us before. The God on the Mountain is the God in the Valley. The God of the good times is the God of the tough times. Same God in both situations. Consider that. Make the most out of the life God has given us, he says. 
When we hit the hard times, he's saying this, remember, God has not let you down. God has not left you. He's not deserted you. He's not being mean to you. There are some things that you can learn in the dark that you would never be able to learn in the light. One Christian leader who lived well up into his 90s said, looking back over my 90 years, I realize I have never made any progress in the good times. I've only progressed in the hard times. Well, that may not be universal, but it's a pretty good corollary. Trials don't make us, trials reveal us. And then we deal with them. Well, he's got one more thing he wants to talk about, and that's the wise way of dealing with things you don't understand. The rest of the chapter deals with these things. Three things he talks about that, that most of us don't understand and have a hard time coping with. These things drive us to despair sometimes and wanting to give up. He, so he lays them out for us. Number one, unfairness of life. He says in verse 15, I've seen everything during my lifetime of fertility. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. This is something a lot of people struggle with. Why is it that some criminal, some awful person, some, some, some terrorist lives forever and ever, it seems like, and has a good life, and some real decent young man or woman dies young in life? That doesn't seem fair, does it? Their whole future in front of them. That doesn't seem right. But it happens all the time. I was texting this morning to, to a couple of people concerning the service this morning. And up pops on my phone something I just had to note this morning. That 50 years ago there was a plane crash, crash in Chicago. And killed 40 some people. I just had to know that this morning, right? I mean, everybody needs to know. There's not enough trouble now. I didn't know what happened 50 years ago. And that was a very unfortunate, unfair thing. An airplane landed in a neighborhood, killing all sorts of people. How fair is that? People start fixating on that kind of thing, and they begin to wonder, what kind of God do I have? Matter of fact, a number of people will say, I, I cannot worship, I cannot believe in a God who will allow these kind of things to happen. That's a fairly common thing. What is God's response to that? Basically, God does not owe you an explanation. God does, not need a, God does not apologize for being God. God is God, and it's us for us to, to adjust to that and to worship him as well. I'm going to have to skip some of the reading, but in verse 16, some people, as they look at that, say, well, you know what? I'll just bribe God by being good. I'll be so good, God has to give me the good stuff. And when he doesn't, oh, what kind of God do I have here? He was going to give me the good stuff. But the other side is to run from God. Verse 17, if we can't control God that way, I'll just be bad. Who cares? I'll just be as bad as I can be. Of course, that misses the point that one day you will face that holy, righteous God in judgment. So I'm going to talk about that later. But the third option is verse 18, and that is this. It is good for you to grasp one thing and not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Fear God. In the context of Ecclesiastes, that means that you know, you know the awesomeness, the greatness, the beauty, the wonder, the power, the sovereignty of God. And you worship Him for who He is. You don't fight Him. You don't try to bribe Him. You fear Him in that way. God owes you nothing. You owe Him fear. Secondly, there's criticism. Verse 19 to 22, he talks about criticism. Uh, and he, he, Going down to verse uh, 21... Also, do not take seriously all the words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. 
For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. It's hard to take criticism, isn't it? Nobody likes to be criticized, and, and especially behind your back. But he says here, everybody does it. Isn't that sad? I do it. You do it. We do it. Sometimes when I've, I've said something too harsh about somebody, either to myself or to somebody else, and I think if that person was right there in that room, that would hurt them, and it would be unfair, and I'd be trying to explain why, what I really meant, right? Well, we shouldn't do that. We should be giving gracious attitudes and words towards one another, but at the same time, he said, people are going to be critical. They're going to be critical of you. They're going to be critical of me. Don't take it too seriously, because you do it too, he says. And then the humility's drift towards sin. Why, verses 23 to 29, why is the world such a mess? One of the great verses of, of this book is at the very end, verse 29, Behold, I have found only this, that God has made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. So he said, look, God has made us upright. He's made us to go a certain pathway. But humanity seeks many ways to go astray. And as I was thinking about this, the fact of the matter is there are hundreds of even thousands of ways to go wrong in this world. But there's only one right path, only one right way, the way to Christ. I think of in Matthew chapter 7, you don't necessarily have to turn there, but in verses 13 and 14, Jesus says it this way, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few that find it. That's what Solomon is leading us to. The one pathway, the one gateway. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no one comes to the Father but through me. People have devised many false ways to go. There's only one right way to go. If you've ever gone to a party, you were invited to a party, a Christmas party, and you go to the wrong house. I actually did that once. I went to the wrong house, and um, there was no party there, but there were some grouchy people who said, what are you doing here? Uh, okay, and I, I did find the party, but what if I had given up? What if I said, you know, this is, maybe this is a trick. Maybe, maybe Jack Reynolds set this out, and, and this is a trick, and there's no party at all. And so I just, the party might be two doors down, but I don't know it, so I go home. And I'm mad I missed the party. That's sad, because a party's going on, but I missed it. I went to the wrong place. Solomon said there's a party going on. It's the party of life with God. It's knowing Him. Everybody goes to the wrong door, thinking the party's there, except for those who find life in Christ. And then we find the true party, the true life, the eternal life with Him forevermore. How we encourage you today to contemplate these serious issues and go to the right place and be with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for this very complex little chapter. We pray that we've been faithful to teach what it teaches and that your spirit is at work in every heart here to do that which we should do with you in our own particular circumstance. So I pray for that, Father. Pray especially for anybody who might not know Christ. May this be the day they come to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.